0: Welcome to Cannabis Capital the Podcast. Blunt Truths about the cannabis economy with your hosts, Ross O'Brien and Maggie Kelly. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cannabis Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Ross O'Brien, venture capitalist and author of Cannabis Capital the Book. And I'm here as always with my astute colleague and co-host, Maggie Kelly. Hi Maggie. I'm excited for another amazing episode.
1: Hi Ross. I'm excited as well. We have a great interview today with Mike Sanchez. He is the president and founder of Emergent Layer, a public relations firm.
0: Oh yeah, this is such a great interview. So I'm excited for the uh, cannabis economy challenge, Maggie. I'm feeling uh, feeling I'm like I'm on a hot streak here.
1: Well you you definitely are Ross. you're definitely on a hot streak. I think that's why they call you Ross Vegas. But anyway, listeners, before we get started, a little background, the Cannabis Economy Challenge. This is based on our belief that cannabis is not an industry but a global macro economy. And the impact of legalization is not creating one industry but multiple dynamic industries in their own right. So Ross, this week's challenge is actually based on a conversation that I overheard. Um, I was a little creepy, slightly eavesdropping. It was a conversation about religion and cannabis and its role in religion and history and all this kind of thing. So it didn't seem like the couple having the conversation thought that cannabis was in any way tied to religious background. And it made me think in terms of religion as a religion as a topic going forward. How do you think cannabis plays a role? Do you well, think, it I think
0: does? yeah definitely i think this is super interesting and and in fact this is great because it expands the challenge beyond just our belief that cannabis has reached every boardroom everywhere but i think it's it's indicative that cannabis is a part of our cultures and it's part of our communities and it's here to stay and it is a global macro trend that's here to stay and subsequently it is impacting our broader lives beyond just the business lives that we have and i think it's it's most prevalent when you start to look at the trend towards mindfulness, the trend towards awakening, the trends towards, you know, new forms of meditation. I mean, everybody by now has probably been introduced to the concept of going on a vision quest and taking ayahuasca and, you know, South America somewhere. It's pretty, it, it's a pretty profound sort of like out in the zeitgeist kind of concept. And to me, this just proves that plant-based medicine is something that interacts naturally with our physiology and naturally with our being. And there are all kinds of ways in which that that can be used productively or otherwise in our day-to-day lives. And we're hearing all kinds of new forms of meditation and new forms of mindfulness that are being developed around using cannabis, around using psilocybin and, and psychedelics. And I think that's been happening, but I think we're seeing this general trend towards you know moving away from organized religion and more towards mindfulness moving away from currency and towards you know blockchain and moving away from alcohol towards cannabis i mean these are now cultural shifts that we're right at the beginning stages of and i think it's super exciting so i would say religion is probably one of the early adopter markets outside of just the general business markets although you know you could probably argue that religion's a business too right but i think we're seeing this all over the place and it's something that's becoming a staple in the way in which people explore mindfulness
1: i get it and i hope that couple in the coffee shop listens into this episode and yes no in fact i was eavesdropping on you (laughs) it's now confirmed
0: well send send maggie a note and we'll send you a free book if you're out there
1: okay listeners if you think you can stump ross and you want to partake in the cannabis economy challenge please visit cannabiscapitalpodcast.com to submit your Cannabis Economy Challenge, your submission just could make it on the air. Now stay tuned for a great interview with Mike Sanchez, founder and president of Emergent Layer.
2: Hi everybody, I'm Mike Sanchez, president of Emergent Layer, and my blunt truth is the cannabis industry and cannabis entrepreneurs need to take care of telling their own story and owning their own narrative and not allow others to do it for them.
1: Hi, Mike. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing, Ross? I just see you smiling there. You doing good?
0: Oh, fantastic, Maggie. Thank you.
1: Well, Mike, we're very happy to have you on the podcast today. We've known you for a while, and we're excited for our listeners to hear what you have to say. Before we get started, why don't you give them a little bit of background about yourself and about Emergent Layer?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, my name's Mike Sanchez. I'm... um... President of Emergent Layer, which is a PR marketing agency that helps uh, companies in emerging sectors such as cannabis, AI, really anything that excites me, tell their stories, especially if they're complicated ones. The cannabis industry being one that is probably the most challenging and has you know often been maligned throughout our nation's history as an industry that's for people who are stoners or this or that, whatever negative perception you can have. And I think finally, through storytelling, through personal anecdotes of that aunt or uncle who uses cannabis or CBD to ease their pain, people are starting to realize they were so wrong and there's a lot of value in cannabis. And it's been an honor helping tell those stories. And prior to that, I've worked with companies in the Fortune 100 to the small startups and all sorts of sectors from the visas of the world to the Samsungs or what have you, but working with it entrepreneurs and smaller companies is what really, really excites me and uh, convinced me to take the plunge.
1: Also for our listener benefit, what's the difference between PR and marketing?
2: It's hard to distill the difference, but think of marketing as like the umbrella term that encapsulates a lot of different things, PR being one of it, which what I do is earned media. So helping condense a company's story down to its essence, pitching it in a compelling way to a reporter and earning coverage, meaning you've done such a good job telling your story. It's timely. It's newsworthy. You secure unpaid coverage. That's public relations under marketing. Also under marketing is advertising. So actually paying for an ad spot, whether it be in a magazine, a commercial, Social media, pretty much anything spend is advertising. And where it gets tricky is they kind of blur together. But for the cannabis industry, public relations, I think, has been a better allocation of time and money than advertising, because as many people have seen the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, what have you, there's a lot of companies getting their profiles banned. They've spent years trying to build up their audience and all it takes is somebody to flag a photo or one of their content moderators to block you and there goes all your efforts.
0: Right. So Mike, can you talk a little bit? I think that's really important to understand. One of the things that people in the cannabis economy today are trying to get their arms around is why are there these restrictions on certain avenues social media why has cannabis marketing and pr been put on its own you know on its own box that it has to operate within
2: yeah that is the million dollar question i think a lot of it just has to go down has ha, is a part of how cannabis has been maligned over time it is federally illegal there is still this older generation who views it with a stigma, which is not to say everybody, but it's still viewed with that negative lens. And as a result of it being federally illegal, there's a lot of important infrastructure that these businesses and entrepreneurs don't have access to. So banking being one of them, social media being part of it because of rules on paraphernalia, not promoting use and things like that. And but they're also private companies. So Part of it is on the owners of these companies, the moderators at these companies. Cannabis isn't the only economy that's been negatively influenced. There's some, every day you hear about Facebook banning this one group, but not another, or this image or that image and not providing you know any compelling reasons. Hopefully that'll change, but that's just uh, the world that we live in right now.
0: So our audience is a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs, obviously, and cannabis investors. Can you just double click on this, what's happening in social media? It's not just as simple as going out there and putting out a social media campaign, is it?
2: No, it's not. It's so it's pretty tricky. I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs who do have social media and that has been their primary venue and just trying to establish other methods of communicating with their audience and making sales. You you can't rely solely on a large Instagram following like some of these Etsy entrepreneurs are doing to sell your you know, devices or your products or what have you. Um, because you do run that risk of being banned. I don't know, Disney bracelets aren't likely to be as cracked down from the Instagram gods than cannabis even if you're not directly touching the plant which is unfortunate but it happens time and time again i forget who was in the news recently one of the large companies from canada who's legit who's been around forever and is one of the leaders in cannabis had their profiles locked so it's something that i'm sure most of your listeners have had it happen to them or know someone who has had it happen to them as well it's just unfortunately really common
1: I think it's a good cautionary tale, though, for entrepreneurs who are just getting started, who are flushing out their marketing plans right now and thinking, well, I already have a pretty good audience on Instagram or Facebook. I'm just going to leverage that to my benefit for my company. And from what you're saying, that's not certain. That's not for certain. And that can be taken away essentially overnight. And you're starting yeah, to Yeah, absolutely.
2: Crack and that's why a lot of email marketing and cannabis focused social media sites just for the industry outside of the big Facebook, Twitter, Instagram are sprouting up and entrepreneurs realize you really have to control your own narrative, have your own methods of communication, it's something that we've seen a lot of companies do, start their own newsletter, start their own podcast, hey, like YouTube channels, things like that to give you different avenues of telling your message and I think that's why public relations has really resonated, been really influential for the cannabis economy. Everybody knows social media is not as trusted as a reporter, let's say Bloomberg, who's done their research in the industry and is a, an, an expert in their field. Having that third-party credibility and having it come from someone else instead of them thinking you're tooting your own horn is also more impactful if you're trying to actually influence people and influence their opinion where social media is more so continuing to engage with your customers and shape your brand and what do you want to be known for but as far as actually influencing minds and the minds of people who matter in policy potential customers and partners pr has been very helpful in that regard
0: So I keep asking Maggie when she's going to launch our MySpace page, um, because I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's going to be where we need to really put a pretty heavy presence. So so Mike, for those of us that are probably more advanced than I am in the world of the social medias, one of the things that we look at as investors is we talk about temporary versus permanent solutions, band-aids versus sustainable enterprise. You mentioned there's a lot of alternative channels opening up. What do you think is going to happen? Can you make a prediction? Do you think there is a future for these one-offs that are very customized and specialized for cannabis? Or is this just something that is a band-aid that is a solution until the large incumbents really embrace cannabis more broadly?
2: I, Yeah, I, I do think it's not going to be a permanent solution just because focusing so much on cannabis companies limits their reach. I think you are... Mm-hmm. The ultimate goal is to resolve the issue and be be as searchable as if you were looking for a breakfast spot in a new city where you could just say, hey, Google, tell me all the the breakfast spots in in Anaheim. It was in Disneyland the other day. If you're shadow banned and you are at risk of being shadow banned, then that puts you out of...
0: Sorry, Mike. Can you explain for everybody what shadow banned means?
2: Of course. So shadow banned is when these uh, social media companies actually ban you and take you into review, right? Like you'll be flagged, hey, this post violated our terms of, of agreement or service. You have a chance to petition and then either you remain banned, which is thankfully becoming a little bit rarer, or you can come back. However, people have noted once they do come back from this review process, I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly they've noticed a reduced interaction, reduced performance engagement of their audience. So it, it, and it could also slow down momentum depending on how long the ban could go. So, so what are um, they afraid
0: of? What, what are they afraid of if they want to shadow ban you? What, what is the big fear from Facebook? If they allow more broadly conversations, marketing, promotion, social media around cannabis, paraphernalia, et cetera.
2: I think they just want to, they don't want to be at risk for liability is usually, like, where do most of these decisions come from? It's like fear of getting sued, I'm sure. So because it is federally illegal, there are still wonky laws on promoting cannabis business, promoting across state lines, especially if you're a dispensary or any type of delivery service. They, this is just me here. If I were in Facebook shoes or whatever suit, shoes, I'm sure it's to reduce legal. And once again, until it gets solved federally, there's a lot of temporary mandate solutions in you know, marketing, in banking, in HR and payroll, but a lot of people are still afraid to touch these conversations touch the industry, touch the cannabis economy um, because it is federally legal because of that legal risk.
0: So do you have some examples that maybe you could provide for the listeners that are things that are falling in bounds versus out of bounds if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, I want to because i I see stuff and in Instagram, right and so he says, hey, I want to promote a conference that I'm hosting on Instagram, or I've got a new product that I want to put out there. Are there general guidelines that you've been able to, to develop?
2: Being on the PR side, I may not be as close to it, but even in journalism, there are some reporters that I've worked with from the tech sector or the business sector, known outlets that either they personally or the outlet itself has a stance that they choose not to cover cannabis, which is unfortunate. So I think the the problem is there really aren't as firm black-white guidelines as you would like. There's so much gray area, and that's where everybody gets really confused and where problems can arise. And on the side of these platform owners, they would rather just not take that risk at all and lean more heavily towards banning. Like, even, like, you see subreddits get banned all the time when some of the content goes a little bit haywire, not even just for cannabis, but for anything. And that's the the pressure that they face. And unfortunately, this fear of getting sued, this fear of not knowing what the law is, so let's just not risk it and ban this profile. Or This is what's hindering progress. This is what's um, making it hard for entrepreneurs to grow their companies, to uh, expand their audiences, and even from the medical side, it being a schedule one narcotic, doing the research to find ways that can improve health outcomes. It's just limiting progress.
1: I think it's also an exercise in frustration. If, as we're on the topic of social media accounts being banned, I worked for a municipal government, and we were flagged somehow. And we're not allowed to advertise free recreational programs on Facebook. So it's it's uh, you have this behemoth that probably grew too fast, too quickly, and is trying to figure out all the little nuts and bolts of how things work. And in the meantime our entrepreneurs are trying to figure out why I can't advertise on Facebook or why I can't advertise on Instagram. And you're probably never going to get an answer to that question. Layer in cannabis economy issues, and that's a whole other ballgame.
2: Yeah, I I worked with this startup out of Chile who made at-home grow kits. And it was really ahead of its time. It was all automated down to the strain. So these were scientists working with the Chilean government, which is has the driest desert in the world, the Atacama, not a lot of rainfalls in Chile. So they were looking into aeroponics where they would spray nutrients and water, balance the pH onto the root directly. It just so happened that they sold these boxes tailored towards cannabis and promoted it primarily through Instagram, which was like by far their, their largest driver of traffic and sales. And they did a really good job of making it neutral and more geared towards at home growing, tomatoes, but with always a bit of a wink wink to let people know you could grow cannabis in this. And unfortunately, they winked too hard one time, and they got banned for a few months, which totally ruined their the fundraiser they were going towards, it, it slowed momentum, and eventually they worked to get it back. But the pro- what makes it scary for entrepreneurs is, where is that line? what content is acceptable and what is not so mike you've
0: worked a lot with non-cannabis economy companies large and small i want to drill down a little bit in two areas first being so so what are the best practices fundamentals of pr that do translate to cannabis so we know we've got this dynamic but Where is the the highest and best use of time? What do you look for in a great story that can be told into whether it's earned media or other outlets?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I've worked with primarily a lot of tech companies um, just being based here in Silicon Valley. I've been doing uh, PR in the Bay Area for nearly, nearly a decade. The best time to do PR, I would say for a company starting out is the earlier, the better. Once you get too big, too quickly, and you haven't engaged in PR, you start to see a lot of coverage, a lot of narrative being driven by people who may have never had the chance to meet with you. So usually, I'd say the most impactful thing is to research who the most influential reporters are in whatever industry you're a part of, whether it be artificial intelligence, whether it be consumer electronics, cannabis, healthcare, who are the main thought leaders who really shape the conversation in that sector? And even if you, you're you not the Apple or Amazon of the world, get a chance to know them. Even if it's meeting them for coffee, even if it's offering to share commentary or be a resource for future stories. That'll build a human connection that'll allow them to, when they do start speaking stories about you, you can educate them. They're not guessing when writing about you. They have that intimate experience. They might reach out to you. And that's something even the apples of the world, Steve Jobs did a really good job of reaching out to some of the top reporters in his space. And even back in, I think it was the Apple Two days, just talking to them, be, being viewed as A thought leader in his industry, even though he was still very young, very up and coming. Down the road, those relationships played a really strong part in Apple's success. And they really didn't, towards the end of it, need to put a lot of effort towards PR. They could always get it, which of course, they're Apple, they're an influential company, but they have such a strong uh, relationship with those reporters that they would just give out one exclusive a year for their new iPhone to to someone from a, a VentureBeat or Gizmodo or, or what have you and get the impact they need.
0: So we see a lot of early stage founders get, in, in my layman's terms, they get enamored with PR or being featured and they seem to, to not have a clear strategy. Could you talk about? Are there certain red flags if somebody's really pushing on PR at an early stage? And and when are you not ready for going out there and trying to get this these relationships forged?
2: Yeah, I I think people are short-sighted and view PR kind of like advertising, where it's transactional and you can almost flip it on and off like a switch. Like with advertising, give Facebook or Instagram some money, create your post. It gets posted relatively quickly. But you can track it um, via their tools. PR is definitely not a switch. It's more like a snowball building momentum going down the hill. There's times where it could take months to tell or to land that compelling story in Forbes or TechCrunch that you really want. And Rossi working for that Business Insider story, it took quite a a few steps nearly a year uh, of meeting the reporter the pandemic in the middle of it reporters are very busy people and newsrooms are shrinking so pr um, is actually getting harder to do because you don't have as many fish in the ocean you don't have as many reporters who can tell your stories so the newsrooms are shrinking but in that same regard because there's less of it there's less supply there's more demand right like Now, if anything, getting a really compelling story in the front page of the Wall Street Journal means even that much more, in my opinion, because the resources are dwindling. So they know that is definitely a compelling story to tell. And in the age of everybody having a voice, like still getting coverage from those significant publications, I think is more valuable than ever. And you mentioned also what stage in a startup's life cycle they should look for PR. Um, I think it is helpful once there's, like turning that corner past the idea stage and they started working on a product and they're ready to bring that product to market or they're ready to announce that large round of funding. Something to indicate that they're ready to to go to the next level and have newsworthy announcements is helpful and I should probably explain news.
1: Please do, please do.
2: Yeah, as a business owner myself, it's your baby and what makes something newsworthy. It's milestones that show a company's progress is like the best way to think about it. Hard numbers are always going to be pretty newsworthy, especially financially. If you've raised, I don't know, $100 million from Andreessen Horowitz. Yeah, that's pretty newsworthy. Someone's willing to take a bet on you. When you unveil your new product, and it's especially if it's something that takes an approach that no one has done before, that's pretty newsworthy if it's a new CEO or like a really high level C-suite hire, that could be newsworthy. Where there's some confusion is if somebody says like, Hey, I just hired like a new social media person. Should we put out a press release? Not necessarily because once again, is that really like rare distinct, like companies hire people all the time, but people don't always hire new CEOs or new CFOs all the time. So think milestones like that as newsworthy.
0: And so I just want to be crystal clear, like in I'm putting it in my words to for everybody to hear. So just having an idea for a business is not newsworthy?
2: <laughs> Definitely not. Okay. Ideas are so t- it's
0: execution. It's what have you accomplished? Yeah. It's what okay. Got it. Is everybody listening to that. So so Mike let's talk about the entrepreneurs at an at an earlier stage that are going through the ideation now into execution. You talked a little bit earlier about with your experience in big corporate small corporate etc and storytelling and I think that's something that's really important and it also maps to how we get to know companies when they make presentations to us and they tell their story about them as founders about the business and the story like you just pointed out is not what can you go do, it's what you've done and the probability that something can happen in the future as a result of that, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about some coaching. If somebody came to you and wanted to tell their story and it's an early stage company, like what are the core elements to storytelling? What should they think about for their various audiences, so there's media, there's investors, there's employees and recruitment, et cetera. How do you think about storytelling and distilling down what are sometimes complicated businesses into something that is digestible?
2: Yeah, of course. First things first, like the information gathering stage is crucial and transparency, I think is the most important thing for entrepreneurs looking for PR. The, the more that we know about what's going on, the better and being caught off guard by an announcement or a problem or have you definitely could probably be resolved if you would let us know in advance. But as far as coaching somebody up and storytelling, I think storytelling is actually, it's complex, but simple. Humans have been telling stories for years. And there's always like a familiar theme to pretty much all stories, I think can be broken down into two or three buckets. The hero story, David going against a Goliath. That's kind of what the Steve Jobs approach was like, here's this 19 year old, trying to take on IBM and followed Apple kind of throughout their career, even now that they've become the big giant with their 1984 campaign or what have you. I think another good way is to try to find some tension. So, or a a different approach there that might be, that differs quite greatly from the status quo. So NaluBio, for example, is a really good one of here is a company who's trying to bring an approach that is to work for aspirin to the cannabis industry and the tension that they're facing is a lot of the regulations that are in place, a lot of the science, perhaps even some of the thinking like, oh, you can't just take this approach to this. You can't try to jam a square peg in a round hole, but the hero making that happen. So little things like that are always helpful. And then finding what are the supporting pieces to kind of complement your thesis? What are the statistics? What are the research that we have? What are, do we have any customer case studies that show this is already working? Like those are all little details that ladder up to that big thesis of what is exciting about what you're doing, what is dramatic, what is new, or even just an interesting approach to an old problem.
1: I appreciate you sharing that because what immediately, what stuck out to me immediately is some founders that we have relationships with. We have an interview with Paige and Chang, the co-founder and CEO of T-Check. He starts with a personal story of why yes. he's doing what he's yes. doing. And it's a meaningful story. It was a family member. There was a problem that she was having And he and his co-founders and his team are solving those problems for those individuals. An upcoming interview that we have with T.J. Stouter, who is co-founder and CEO of Holistic Wellness, his story runs a similar line. There is a family member who meant obviously very much to him who had problems that he wanted to be able to solve. Those are meaningful stories that they tell. And though I've heard them tell them several times now, as soon as they start, I'm enraptured and I'm, I'm game to listen to it all over again. So entrepreneurs, if you're listening, the personal element working that in, yeah. if it's a meaningful one, is worth doing. You'll have my attention every time, at least.
2: And. For the cannabis economy, it draws an empathetic response. Like Al Harrington of Viola also has another great story. His grandmother being in pain and she was very religious and was very anti-cannabis until she realized, oh, it's not just the aspect of getting you high, but there's the medicinal side, the CBD side that changed her life. And I think those stories are probably what has changed the perception in the cannabis Mindset from the people in power to the general populace is the stories of knowing someone who maybe was addicted to opioids or maybe had you know terrible pain, a veteran who came back and was put on all these prescription pills and just suffered tremendous, tremendously from the side effects and found this plant. It changes the narrative and the perception of cannabis users as just stoners or all this 1950s mother jumbo. There's a
1: perception that's hard to shake.
2: Yes, but if you can paint it as a, as cannabis users being your neighbor, being your teacher, being your your doctor, your your friend, your parents, your grandparents, then it's hard Not to paint parents. everybody with that same brush.
0: <laughs> your pets.
2: <laughs> yeah, even your pets. Even
0: your pets. So, yeah, even your pets. So so Mike, I want to drill down on the storytelling again for a second here then. So one of the challenges that I see a lot, and maybe you could talk about are there some common mistakes or some common practices that, that you see that that you think people should address. To my mind, it's it's coming from a place where they feel that their business idea or the solution is so complicated, they need an hour to explain it. Right. Like at a certain point, if you have the personal experience, you, every business can be distilled down to one sentence. And if it can't, I would argue you don't have a handle on your business yet. Yeah. Do you, Do you agree? Disagree? Or do you see that in your world?
2: No, I, I I totally agree. You need to be able to tell your audience whether that be an investor, whether that be a journalist, whether that be your your spouse. You you have to distill it in one sentence. And if you can't do it, then then there's an issue. And even if it's saying we're like. Uber, but for cannabis delivery. We're like X, but for Y. Like people are visual thinkers. So just find a way to do it that's very simple, whether drawing a comparison to something that's already happened or a service that I, I don't know how to explain it, but just do it very as simply as you can. And if it takes even more than, than two or three sentences, then you've already lost them.
1: And I would say on that same line, If you're pitching me your business and I don't understand your idea, that's on you, not on me. And I find that sometimes when you ask a founder, okay, I'm not quite following you, can you explain that? Again, there's a level of frustration of, "Well, you don't get my idea. I can't explain it to you if you don't get it. So just knowing that crafting that story is very important and it's not on the listener to get your idea. You're supposed to explain it in a succinct manner. So, Mike, if we could switch gears, you've had your PR expert hat on, but you're also a founder. You're an entrepreneur. So you can talk to us about PR all day long, the ins and outs of the cannabis economy. We've had many thoughtful conversations with you over the years. But I would like for you, as a founder, what is the hardest lesson you've had to learn?
2: I say two things. I am a founder but I do I don't do emergent layer 100% of the time because of current family life putting my wife through law school also just being I guess fully afraid of taking the full plunge while someone else is reliant on me for the day to day. So I think that has been a challenge and also this is going to sound really funny but just marketing because of that has do been tell. an issue. It's it's hard to stand out in a very crowded space unless you're willing, unless you subscribe to the theory that any exposure is good exposure, in which case I'll do something ridiculous like tie myself to a billboard in Hollywood like Steve-O did or or what have you. But I'm realizing the the difficulty of running a startup and I have great respect for people who do it you know, full time, willing to drop out of college, but even more so those who perhaps are a little older and already had a kid and had a family and stability, like stable job and still jump into the fray. So I think that has been a challenge for me. And I'm kind of at the point where I'm about to perhaps go a little bit more full time. But as far as differentiating yourself from especially in the services industry. Companies who've been around for hundreds of years and have have defined your space, that's something that other startups deal with as well. Because unfortunately, it isn't really who has the best product or software or tool or what have you. None of that matters if nobody knows you exist. And I think a a lot of founders, especially on the tech side, they just think, oh, my software is so great. I don't need to toot my own horn or I don't really need to promote it. The world should work this way, but the world's not fair. Some of the biggest companies have really shitty software, but they won the PR battle, and that's why they're the 800-pound gorilla.
1: So lesson, hint, hint, entrepreneurs, be crafting your story now and seek out a really good PR person.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think just people are afraid to – or maybe not afraid. They think they're being humble not to – Brag, And don't think about it as brag about your, your solution or tool or, or what have you, because if it is, if it will make someone's life easier, if, if it will reduce people's pain, then you should want to evangelize it and think about it in that regard. You're doing people a favor by letting them know you don't have to spend six hours doing this task. You can do it in 30 minutes or with one click, or you don't have to take opioids. You don't have to do X, Y, Z. We're here to help.
0: So, Mike, why don't we wrap up with one question for you? Because this is the Cannabis Capital podcast. What was your favorite part of my book? Did I did I mention I wrote a book? I'm sorry. We haven't wow. talked about it the whole episode. Don't
1: feel compelled to answer that, Mike.
2: I know. Oh, no, I did read the book and I know We'll give him what he it wants. Want.
1: I love no, I'm give you. One.
2: I'll give <laughs> you what you want because I think this part's don't important. What he wants. No, like the, the the fact that entrepreneurs think that The cannabis economy is different and they have to pitch themselves differently to investors because they're in cannabis and it's Pixies and Fairy Dust. No, you're still a business at the end of the day. And I want to close with this too. You can have the best storytelling. You can have the best PR, but like you can't put lipstick on a pig. Like focus on your business first. Have so much success there that people have to pay attention because... That makes my job easier in telling your story to reporters because it's not a bunch of I love it like trying to to make it happen. No, it's already happening. This is already an exciting company. Look at their growth numbers, look at the investors they have, look at the products they just and when pitching yourself to investors, they they can't ignore the tidal wave that you've created.
0: Spoken like a true founder, a veteran founder <laughs> too, Mike. Thank you. Amen to that.
1: Well Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate all that you shared with our listeners.
2: This was great. Thanks, Mike. No problem. I'm super excited that